From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha. Our recent studies show that it would take us to the year 2066. If everything stayed at the same rate of growth, it would take until 2066 before women and men in Nebraska were making the same amount. So if you think about what that means not only for a current family, but for things like retirement savings, for um, college savings, for kids, if that's what they choose to do when they get older. I mean, it really impacts the family as a whole. Um, And that was a white woman's salary. It's even less for women of color. We talk about Giles's upbringing, her relationship to Omaha culture, and her vision for its future. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha and Friends of KIOS board member. The Women's Fund addresses gender-based inequities in our community through collaboration that identifies, researches, and creates solutions to advance, educate, and fund lasting impact. Giles discusses her early days as a journalist before transitioning to her current position, as well as the vision she has for Omaha's future. Here's our conversation. So your first broadcasting work was at an NPR station, you just were saying. What was the story there? I was a graduate student at the University of Missouri in Columbia. Our first journalism class as a grad student was you get to report on stories for the local NPR station. So at that moment in time, I really fell in love with the importance of public radio and the ability to bring dynamic stories to listeners. Had you been like a listener of NPR programming up to that point or was this sort of your introduction to it? I was. My parents always had news on in Mm. our home, whether it be radio or they were newspaper subscribers. My mom religiously watched the evening news. So we were news consumers. So it was a part of my life growing up. Well, I mean, so it's kind of interesting the way that journalism has shifted culturally for us, right? Like, There was a point, I think, for a lot of probably the 20th century where it was cool to be a journalist and you could have a professional life as a journalist. And now that feels like it's not quite a thing anymore. Uh, So, I mean, were you, like, as a kid, were there these sorts of, uh, like, journalistic superstars you were looking to who you're like, oh, I want to be like that person? Yes. Connie Chung. Okay. She was the first woman of color that I saw as a professional journalist. And I thought... That's who I want to be. What was it about her, like the way that she did it, that you were like, I could do that? There was a seriousness to her tone. There was compassion. There was credibility. And I think just the way she delivered her reports was appealing to me. Around that time, I think I was in middle school, and one of our English assignments was to pick a career that you might be interested in and go and spend some time there shadowing and write a report about your experience. So I picked a local television station and I went and I spent so many hours there. They just let me continue. (laughs) Do you want to watch the six o'clock news? Yes. How many more newscasts can I watch? Um, I just got the bug from that assignment and then watching Connie Chung and and just following her career and other journalists of color just stayed with me throughout my life. I think it was in high school. One of the local news anchors came to talk to my journalism class and he looked so tired that I remember there was some (laughs) part of me I thought it seemed cool, but I'm like, oh, he is completely exhausted. This is maybe not an easy job. Initially, it seemed really cool. By the time I was in college and doing an actual internship, that's when I saw how tired it was. And the mantra of eat, sleep, news, <laughs> repeat. <laughs> yes, it is a very tiring career, but also really rewarding. Yeah. Before you had this model and this sort of tangible dream, was there a, a less tangible dream job you had as a kid? Let's see. I was a competitive gymnast. Oh, okay. So that was probably the first thing I wanted to do was to be in the Olympics. 
then I ran track, so then I wanted to be in the Olympics for that. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, yeah, it was it was journalism from there. Okay. So like, were you a, a generally competitive kid then? Yes. Did that get funneled into journalism or other things, or did it dissipate over time? No, no. My family would tell you they don't want to play board games with me because <laughs> I am so competitive. It's really sad because my son and my husband will write on the calendar when they win. <laughs> because I usually win. <laughs> so That's a good really combination. Fun. Competitive and being able to win is better than competitive and really mad because you lost. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's true. Where, so where does that come from, that, comp- that competition? Maybe I'm the firstborn. Maybe that's it. Um, I don't know. I think I've always just had that drive of ambition, and I see opportunity within challenge, Mm -hmm. and that excites me. Is it sort of the excitement of the sort of like pushing yourself out of a comfort zone is both scary but kind of exhilarating when you figure it out? Exactly, yes. But how how did you start to take those skills and go from something like sports into something that is a professional skill? In journalism, there's lots of competition, right? You're competing against your peers that you work alongside for the best story. When you're a television journalist, you want to be in the first slot. There's thinking about who your sources are and how you can break a story. When I worked in Georgia, I worked in Columbus, Georgia, before I moved to Nebraska. My favorite thing there was reporting on city government. I love to compete against my newspaper colleagues because they were seasoned journalists. I'm a young person. This is my first real job after graduate school. And to be able to break stories and um, get information, that was really exhilarating for me. Why TV specifically? Why'd you go for the broadcast model? I enjoy being a communicator, and I enjoy the public part of that, so Mm. public speaking. I probably didn't mention that I participated in a lot of oratorical contests as a young child. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, so I've been doing public speaking probably since I was two. I still get nervous every single time. Really? No stage fright? Or you still have stage fright? Every single time. Wow, okay. Uh, I just know how to manage it now and recognize how I'm feeling and and know that I'm nervous and I manage it better. But uh, so I participated in a lot of oratorical contests and I won most of them. (laughs) Well, so, I mean, it's got that same thing, right? If you you get nervous and you get to be ambitious because you get to overcome it and succeed in the end. I mean, so as someone who has stage fright, it's got to be tough, though, to start to talk in front of people because at a certain point, you know you're going to be able to find the words that you need to find to accomplish whatever it is you need to do that day. So when you were starting, I mean, was it was it terrifying to you, or did you always have like, all right, I'm going to accomplish this, I'm going to conquer this new thing that scares me, even as a kid? No, because most of my speeches were memorized, and so I would practice and rehearse and rehearse delivery and rehearse pauses and all of the dramatic elements that go along with it. So I felt pretty comfortable mm-hmm. with, once I started, I knew where I was going. Okay. And that seemed to serve me well as a journalist. When we when you have live reports, it was helpful to have that experience in the back of my head and in my body. So it was like muscle memory at that point. Right. Well, we talked even a little bit before we started here, but at some points, journalism can feel like you actually have a limited ability, counterintuitively, to have thoughts and express them that sometimes you're stuck playing this persona that you need to play, which is either very neutral or, you know, it's maybe not as tied to your passions or interests as, like, the dream of a journalist or, like, your Woodward and Bernsteins out there, like, finding things and, you know, taking their anxieties about the country and turning it into the best-selling book, you know, of that sort. Was that part of what made you start to look elsewhere instead of sticking with journalism? Absolutely. I was a journalist during 9-11, And that felt like a pivotal moment in our industry at the time. A lot of advertising dollars declined or went away. And then you started to see the advent of the internet and more consumer-driven news where people can self-select what is of interest to them. So it was around that time that I started to feel as if the industry had changed enough that I wasn't able to do the types of stories that I really wanted to do. I love talking about 
issues that impact community. I love being able to facilitate and have conversations with community members about their concerns and think about how that is impacted in terms of what elected officials are doing and the decisions that they may be making that impact community. And we just didn't have the opportunity to do that. And it's particularly in broadcast, we were limited to what we call the ambulance chaser type stories, right? Something that happened on a police scanner or a fire or a court case or hearing. So you, I really didn't have the opportunity to dig into the issues that I thought were important and I thought the community wanted to learn. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Why is it, do you think, that broadcast news has those limitations as far as the scope that it lets itself explore? Time, staffing are the biggest ones. With broadcast journalism, there's always a newscast. And so you need content to fill it. So it's it takes less time to go to a press event or to follow uh, a crime that's happening than it does to be able to spend days or weeks talking to people, gathering data, um, letting the story really dictate the path that you're going to end up going down. And did you have a sense then that journalism was on a kind of decline in terms of its popularity and uh the lucrative element of it, like the ability to make a living, I guess, even? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I started to see younger and younger journalists come into the field, particularly our photography crew. And I was spending a lot of time teaching them the craft and helping them learn what we need. And I really didn't feel like I had a thought partner where when I was working with a more experienced journalist, you're working on the story together as you're driving from location to location and really thinking about who else can we talk to? What else is needed? What other angle have we not explored? And when it got to a point where you didn't really have the opportunity to do that as much as I wanted to, that's when I knew it was time. And so you shifted to public relations, right? I did, yes. And so that must have been kind of a scary decision, right? Not really, um, because I was prepared for that possibility. Uh, I'm I'm a strategic thinker, and I have such a wide range of interests. So while I was in graduate school, I was able to do two summers of an internship with the Muscular Dystrophy Association. What was really great about that experience was, at the time, they were planning always for their Labor Day um, fundraiser. And they would hire interns that would work in local communities to build awareness and to sort of build a public relations campaign leading up to the Labor Day telethon. And so it was a wonderful opportunity to study journalism, but then in the summer to really learn about public relations and the other side of that. So I felt prepared. I had this huge binder that I kept with me, and I moved <laughs> from, from St. Louis to Georgia to Omaha with this binder. And um, it was a nice foundation Mm -hmm. before I went into public relations. And I went to work at UNMC in their PR department and had the wonderful opportunity of working with really seasoned PR professionals. And I learned and I grew a lot in that department. Now, a lot of people who have never, I mean, did you have an exposure to Omaha, I guess, is really my question before this. Did you know anything about it or was it the stereotypes about like, I get asked sometimes, like, I remember more so like when I was a kid, they'd say, like, Nebraska, you, you guys have electricity there, right? <laughs> Stuff like that. I don't know what your idea was of Omaha. Well, when I was a- applying to work at Fox 42, I had never been to Omaha before. And I it was able to come and see the station and meet with colleagues. But my husband had not been here. And I said, hey, guess what? I got this great job. Let's move (laughs) to Nebraska. He's from Los Angeles. So that was quite a shock. Um, You know, we we were living in Georgia, and that was even a shock for him because he grew up on the West Coast. And so Georgia was a different culture. And Mm -hmm. then the Midwest was a different culture, but one that was similar to both of us having 
we met in college at St. in St. Louis at Washington University. So I said, let's let's move to Omaha, and you know we we found a wonderful community here. Being a journalist and coming to a new city is one of the best ways to learn the city because you're driving around with a photographer, you're going to different places, you're getting to, a chance to meet community members and elected officials and really learn the issues of importance. But it, but you're able to see it with fresh eyes. So was there an adjustment period? Is your husband, is he, is he okay with Omaha now? He's okay, yes. <laughs> he, he loves it, and which is still a shock to all of his relatives on the West Coast. But now we're very happy here. Well, and so, okay, when you were doing public relations then, that seemed like that uh, satisfied some of what you were not able to do before, in part because you're able to get closer to issues and closer mm-hmm. to, I don't know, what I mean, the, the lived experience of people who yes. are, you know, in the middle of those issues. It was so much fun working at the Med Center, which is an amazing place of incredibly smart and passionate people. So to be able to learn about research and tying that to education and then tying that to patient care, it was phenomenal. And the amount of growth that has happened just on that campus. Yeah, Every time I drive by, I feel like I see something new, and, and that's exciting. Well, and so the, the issues that have been sort of driving forces for you, I mean, how, how did they formulate? Like, how did you end up with the, the type of focus of advocacy that you've ended up with? I think some of it, I think a lot of it came from my parents because they were very civic minded and really encouraged me to find my voice and to speak up when there's something that you care about. So a lot of the things that I care about are related to education, um, equality, um, you know, issues that impact my life as a woman, as African-American. And so it, so there's been so many threads in all of my work that have incorporated different pieces of that. And so, I mean, as far as finding your voice and finding your comfort with those issues, what were some of the moments that helped you form that comfort? I think the training in public speaking gave me the confidence to be able to speak up. I think just my experience as being an the oldest child in my family. Um, My siblings would probably say I'm a little bossy. That's probably true. Um, So I think some of that, I'm I'm also a petite person. So I've often come into a room and wondered how will I present and be in this space? And I never wanted to be overlooked or not have my voice heard for whatever reason. So I think I've just always felt comfortable and confident in myself and and what I think and in my lived experience. And I want to share that with others when they're interested and encourage other people to do the same. And so when was the move then from working at UNMC to the Women's Fund? So there were a couple steps in between there. Okay, well, all right. I'm sorry. I'm getting too far ahead. I'll slow down. Um, So I've, I've always had a passion for nonprofit work. Um, because it's mission-driven, because you feel as if you're able to contribute whatever gifts and talents that you have to help solve a community issue. Um, so I'm very community-minded and, and just believe that we're all living in this world together. Let's figure out how to do it in the best way possible. So education was a part of that in healthcare, um, And then I began to think about what, what other areas in life do I want to learn and explore? And I had the opportunity to work at M-Space Lovegren, which is a communications firm that worked with a lot of nonprofits. So it was a wonderful experience to not only work at the time, it was, uh, we had a small team of, of maybe 10, and it was all female, and that was a wonderful experience. I'd never been able to work yet at a place that was all female, which was wonderful for me. Um, and we worked with Nonprofit clients, helping them raise awareness about their organization, about the issues, about fundraising, events that were related to the organization and its mission. And it was a lot of fun. What was it about working with all women that, you know, that was, I don't know, what was different, I guess? And what did you like so much about it? (laughs) Well, it's just great. I mean, in so many ways, Um, from our practical sense, you don't have to put the seat down. It's always (laughs) down in the bathroom. (laughs) 
Um, but, you know, there's a different synergy when women are working together. Um, the way women's minds tend to work, where they're not as linear sometimes as males tend to be. So it was wonderful to feed off of that creative energy and be able to dream and conceptualize together. We just had a wonderful group of people to work with. Yeah, I had a question that's written down, and we maybe is jumping ahead because it's going to tie into talking about the Women's Fund. But I don't know if it's either too complicated to answer or so simple that it's a dumb question. But when we talk about women in our society, societal structures, I guess my question is sort of like, why is it that they tend to both get treated differently, often worse? What's Why is there sexism, I guess? Well, I think the easy answer is because of how our world has been set up. It's been set up from a patriarchal standpoint. And so when that's the lens that we all exist in, then you start to see inequities. And so our mission is to shift that. We had a wonderful, um, we have a shop on our website where you can buy merchandise. So if you ever want to go to omahawomensfund.org, you can do that. Um, But our creative designers had a holiday version of a sweatshirt. And it said slay, as in uh, slay with reindeer, slay the patriarchy, which I thought was very clever. But that's what we want to do. I mean, we want to change the world in a way that is more inclusive of all genders and um, that's what we try to do every day. Well, so, I mean, that's it's a big goal, and it's probably difficult for a lot of people to wrap their mind around what that means, right? So, like, for you forming that as a goal, I mean, I guess, how do you get to the point where you are able to conceptualize what it means to slay the patriarchy? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll give you an example of a policy that we've been trying to work on forever is a salary history ban. And what we know is that in Nebraska, women make about 77.6 cents on the dollar for an average Nebraska male. So in our view, that's an inequity, right? You have, you have two people who are doing a similar-ish type of job. Why are they not paid the same amount? So what happens is, because of this inequity, women are always making less than the males. So when you think about a women-led household, let's say it's a single mom with some kids, so that then affects the economic stability of that family. It could be a two-parent family. And then if the woman is earning less, then that also impacts right the the economic ability of that family. Our recent studies show that it would take us to the year 2066. If everything stayed at the same rate of growth, it would take until 2066 before women and men in Nebraska were making the same amount. So if you think about what that means, not only for a current family, but for things like retirement savings, for um, college savings, for kids, if that's what they choose to do when they get older. I mean, it really impacts the family as a whole. Um, and that was a white woman's salary. It's even less for women of color. The future date there, the projection is because there is slowly more growth, there's slowly more equity being built into the system. And Basically, your argument is we should probably try to speed that along however yes, we can. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But when it comes to something like a policy change around a salary history ban, if you think about when you apply for a job, if they ask you, what was your previous salary? Well, that previous salary is most likely based on the inequity that mm-hmm. exists, that you're being paid less because you're a woman or a woman of color. And so when you say, when you put that number on an application, it's perpetuating the inequity. Yeah. Well, I guess so, like, to connect it to my, my maybe big, maybe dumb question, right, is the inequity exists just because the system has sort of always had that? It's not necessarily – I mean, how much of it is active? How much of it is, like, people who choose to perpetuate sexism versus it's just kind of a, a system that they choose to be a part of and they don't necessarily think too much about why? Yeah, I could see that. 
um, I think a lot of people may view it that way, that this is just how it is. It's always been this way because it doesn't impact them. They may not think that it needs to change. But we're saying we see that there's an inequity and it exists and we need to change it. I'm talking with Joe Giles, executive director of the Women's Fund of Omaha. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Strange planets. So we're going on day 14. Shuttle still hasn't come. Mystifying starships. Looking up. I mean, whoa. Had to be rich to take that ride. Bigger than any ship I'd ever seen before. Curious technology. Set into oh, uh, 21st century Earth, West Indian accent. I love that one. Are you out of your skull? And a fantastic vision of the distant future. Featuring Martin Starr. That's the Sunday shuttle landing. Our last visitors before they shut the topiary down tomorrow. Aparna Nuncherla. The security system provides you with emotional security. You do the rest. Echo Kellum. Can you disconnect me or not? Hurry Kondabolu. Yeah, you don't need to fill anything out or sign me up for anything. I'm staying. Brent Weinbach. Residents may accuse you of lying. This is common. From Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jeffrey McGiver. Could you play Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun? I'm sure we can. It's for my daughter. Of course, sir. And many more. It's The Outer Reach. Stories from Beyond. Every episode of this science fiction anthology is now available for free at MaximumFun.org or anywhere you listen. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. And please leave us a review. I'm talking with Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha and Friends of KIOS board member. Here's the rest of our conversation about what Omaha might look like in the future. And so when does the Women's Fund then allow you an opportunity to engage directly with these issues like you do now? Oh, we get to do it with our advocacy. Um, We're very active in the legislature, which is happening now. Uh, And that's one of the bills that we've proposed and worked with senators to try to pass was a salary history ban. We've also been working with the senator um, to pass paid family and medical leave. And we still can't get that passed, even after almost two years of a global pandemic. Well, so, you know, earlier in our conversation, it sounded like you you do basically like living here, like living in Omaha, living in Nebraska. But it's got to be complicated when you get to a situation where it's difficult to pass stuff like equity for women, which doesn't seem like a radical concept today. But I guess it is because it's difficult to get there, right? It is. And, you know, it's interesting because we often have these conversations in at the Women's Fund and, and with other friends and supporters. We often say, why Why are we living in Nebraska again? <laughs> Maybe we might want to move to another state um, when you see some of the policies that are um, still being supported and, and not being torn down. It is really frustrating. Um, and when we think about trying to recruit workers to our community, when we think about wanting to keep young people here, you know, my husband and I are raising a son. He's 11. You know, we'd love to to see him and all, and all of his friends be able to come back here and work and, and um, contribute to our community. But when you think about some of these really real experiences, it, it does make you question sometimes, is this the place for me? Is your son really worried about property taxes right now? Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what the 11-year-olds are talking about. I'm told young people are very scared about property taxes. Well, you know, what's really interesting is he is in a program in his school, and they're learning about taxes. And they had to pick a job that they may want to do after college. Um, and he picked sports broadcasting, and I'm just thrilled about it. (laughs) And... um, I'm trying not to get too excited about it because I don't want him to change his mind. Like it'll be not cool if it you're too excited. Cool. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm thrilled that he's thinking about that at the moment. But um, 
they're, so they're walking through, this is your salary and um, what your tax rate would be. And we're talking about filing taxes. And he asked me last night, Mom, um, what kind of car could I have? I said, well, what's your salary? You know, and what's your net um, salary monthly? And so that's our assignment tonight is to, is to talk about what type of car he might be able to purchase if he lived in Nebraska and made $39,000 a year as wow. a sports broadcaster. That seems so much more practical than anything I was doing at 11. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk to him about property taxes and um, and filing taxes. I think that's an important conversation for young people to have. But the other conversation we were having was about a bill that's going to be heard tomorrow, actually in Lincoln, that would censor conversations about race and gender in public institutions. And I'm really fired up about this one because if we want to address inequities around women, we have to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> so to me, it's, it's why would you not want to have that conversation? We need to talk about the systems and how our world is set up for us to be able to start to change them in a way that they work for everyone. What is the argument that they're making for why these conversations shouldn't happen? I think that this is a response to some of the conversations that happened last year around systemic racism and sexual orientation and gender identity. And so, I mean, what, the fear of what exactly? Like, what, what's the, the harm of the conversation that they're worried will happen if we don't pass this legislation? Well, they don't want people to feel bad because you have to talk about systemic racism. And I'm sitting here as a woman of color and thinking, that's my existence all the time. Yeah. And there's certainly emotion that that I feel in my lived experience and others, people of color, feel as they navigate the world. And it makes sense to have those conversations. We have to talk about the, we have to be uncomfortable. We have to be courageous to be uncomfortable and have conversations that matter. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting as we sort of see a lot of momentum behind these types of bills right now, it feels like. Uh, and as far as trying to sort of move forward on issues like equity, when there's also sort of a push to not acknowledge certain concepts, it's just sort of, I don't know, it seems difficult sometimes to feel optimistic, to feel like throwing yourself in there is like part of, you know, the, a general type of progress or that things are overall like we, we kind of like to have this just general belief that like, yeah, things are always moving the right direction. Ultimately, it just mm -hmm. it zigs and zags. But it's the, you know, the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. Right. <laughs> right. I don't know. Do you, do you struggle with that ever? Yes, I do. Um, I feel like it's not bending far enough, fast enough in the direction toward where our country needs to go, where our community needs to go. So how do you how do you stay uh, how do you keep yourself from getting nihilistic about it all? <laughs> you know, people ask that question a lot because there certainly is a lot of frustration. There's a lot of anger. Um, you know, if you catch us at the wrong moment at the women's fund, you know, we might be throwing Nerf balls at a screen. <laughs> I don't know, um, but you know, I always come back to the notion that conflict helps us move past that to harmony if we're willing to stay in that for just a little while longer. I think our natural inclination is, as people is to avoid conflict and avoid things that are hard. But there's so much opportunity if we can find compromise um, and find harmony to get on the other side of that. And I just think that I'm just optimistic and in, in, in thinking that we really can have a better world. And so as far as tangible uh, accomplishments, maybe they come from the legislature or otherwise, what are some of the things you're really proud of accomplishing through the Women's Fund? Well, I, you know, I think it's our ability to be nimble. We are in a unique position to have mostly private funding so that when there are issues that come up, we are able to be flexible and take those on as they relate to our mission and our key values. Um, you know, we also 
get to be a leader in the nonprofit space. And so that's exciting to think about what other ways can we support workers and how can we show um, that it can be done and it can be successful if you change your policy to support workers. And so that's another exciting piece. And then we always look for the wins. Um, Maybe it's not that a bill is passed or a bill is defeated, but we've raised awareness about an issue. We've help someone else find their voice and they've realized that they want to testify uh, in front of a public body. Perhaps we've built a coalition of like-minded people. Um, Last summer when we were engaged in the comprehensive sex education discussion, we were able to reach and to mobilize young people who were able to be courageous and stand up in front of the State Board of Education and talk about what type of information they feel like they need to be productive adults and to have the life that they want in our state. So that's exciting. All of those are wins. And that energizes us to stay in the fight. Do you think that it's tough for me sometimes to contextualize history with today and like these sweeping generalizations like is there more of a divide between young people and old people's conception of the world the world they want there to be now or is it always just been that with slightly different issues yeah i think it i think there's always been that tension um with slightly different issues and you know but i also am in that space where i remember when i was a young person when i was a teenager when i was in college and i remember thinking that my parents were the dumbest people in the world right <laughs> like they don't know anything they don't know what my world is like they have no concept of of what our thinking is and then now that i'm older and have my own child that I'm raising, I often call my parents and apologize (laughs) profusely. Do you remember when I said that uh, (laughs) as a young person? And they just laugh uh, and give me all the grace, which I'm so appreciative of. Um, but But I do think you kind of go through that phase and think that there's such distance between generations. And at the end of the day, I think we want a lot of the same things. We want to be seen. We want to be able to feel comfortable in who we are and whatever that looks like, however we identify. Um, We want to feel respected. We want to feel heard. And from a, a most basic sense, you know, people want to be able to have a safe and affordable home, to be able to have the basic necessities, right, food, clothing, Um, And also be able to enjoy life and vacation and travel and spend time with friends and have loving families. I think we all want many of the same things. We just disagree on how to get there and when. Well, yeah, like so that's where an issue like paid family leave is really relevant. Why is it so hard to get it passed in Nebraska? (laughs) The business community is not very supportive of the idea. And that infuriates me because... It's an issue. We've lived this pandemic, all of us, and we've seen that when you have flexible work environments, productivity skyrocketed, right? And, you know, so there's a way to be compassionate towards employees and then have that loyalty and productivity. So your bottom line is impacted. Why does it make a difference whether they can work from home or be paid when they're sick? What, I mean, what's the answer? Why, why, if it's not the bottom line, what is it? Businesses don't want to be told that they have to comply with something, is what we heard. Well, and so, I mean, that, that kind of brings up another issue as far as this maybe disconnect between what a lot of people seem to want and what can or can't get passed is, you know, the, I think there are reasonable questions about are a lot of the people with power listening to the broader consensus of a populace of constituents or business interests who have a lot of money to sort of move things when they want to. Exactly. And, you know, one of the things we do at the Women's Fund is we really walk the walk. So our employees have unlimited PTO. And people think, oh, well, that means nobody's working. No. Because you've provided that support and our employees feel as if 
they can bring their whole self to work and not be compromised between whatever their caregiving responsibilities might be outside of work, then that gives them the freedom to be valued as a person and not an employee. And so we have great loyalty. Um, we have so many people that want to work <laughs> for, our, <laughs> for our organization um, because of our work, because of our mission, our values, but also because of how we care for our staff. And that's just an example that other businesses could adopt. And I think the challenge is that businesses don't want to be required to do something because they think that I'm a great business owner. I just do that because it's the right thing to do. The problem is not everybody is doing the right thing that they can do for employees. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Joe Giles, Executive Director of the Women's Fund of Omaha. Join the conversation on social media or call in with what Omaha issue is on your mind this week in a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 for a chance to be featured on one of our upcoming shows. Well, and so another issue that you already mentioned here was uh, sex education, Mm -hmm. which is one that uh, Governor Ricketts uh, repeatedly likes to talk about and kind of turn into a hot button issue. He said people need to remain vigilant where these proposals happen. Uh, It's something that he says should only be addressed at home. So, I mean, okay, just as far as your take on that issue, what is sexual education and what's the value of it for young people? It's so important because so many young people don't get a comprehensive view of their health care, including their reproductive health. And let's be honest, how many parents really enjoy having a sex talk with their child? I would imagine not a ton. Not a ton, right? <laughs> so, so we know that it's not happening at, it may not be happening at home. We also know that home is not always a safe place for every young person. And if that's the case, then why not partner with an education institution to provide that information? My kiddo happens to go to Omaha Public Schools. And as part of the curriculum, they send home a notice that says, okay, we're getting ready to have the health, health science class. And you get to opt in. And even the proposal that was being discussed at the State Board of Education, it was an opt-in opportunity. It wasn't mandated by any means. So there is opportunity for parental input. But it's important for young people to have that information, to learn, to be able to talk to their peers and to talk to trusted adults that can give them the information they need to make those decisions. One of the things that we did at the Women's Fund is we worked with young people who were part of a youth-led research project. So the young people decided what they were going to study, and they decided to look at comprehensive sex education and did an actual research study that was designed, uh, surveyed people the entire across the state of Nebraska. Some of their findings indicated that young people were saying they wanted to learn from trusted adults that were teachers. They didn't want to hear it from their parents. They didn't want to hear it from their peers. They didn't want to find it on YouTube or or on the internet. They wanted to hear it from teachers. They wanted to have a safe space at school to talk about the issues. So for really valuing the people who are wanting the education or being educated, we should listen to the young people and learn what their preferences are. Also in that study, I think 60% of young people said they were learning about sex from porn. So that's the option. Do we want that? Or do we would we rather have some actual science-based curricula that is part of the public school curriculum that is age appropriate. I mean, everything that was in that proposal was what we call scaffolded. So you learn a little bit in kindergarten, you learn a little bit in first grade, and it kind of goes on um, all the way through high school. Or at least if it's in curriculums, right, then there's the opportunity for conversations about 
what's going to be school appropriate, maybe test some trial and error, right? Yes. As opposed to when there's nothing, you're not having even that conversation. Exactly. We have to start somewhere. Well, so what are some of the other issues then that, that we haven't talked about? Oh, some yes. of the big issues. Yes. So uh, I should probably say how we determine the issues that we work on. Um, so what we do is start with research. So we look at the data. We look at things such as how is COVID impacting women in the workplace? Um, we look at issues around comprehensive sex education. We have an adolescent health project. Um, you know, we look at freedom from violence is our other initiative where we're looking at gender-based oppression through that lens. So we do research, we identify issues, we do grant making around community partners that are working on those issues. And then we look at advocacy and where can we move the dial in terms of that. So under our Freedom from Violence initiative, we have three bills that we have worked with senators to introduce that are related to experiences that survivors have told us that they need and want. So for example, we're really excited. Uh, we got a speaker priority on a bill <laughs> today, uh, and it's on survivor anonymity. So what survivors have experienced is when they finally get to a point of reporting abuse, they make an incident report and then before the investigation happens, their name is on a public record as an incident report. When I was a journalist, we would often daily go down to a police station or a law enforcement agency and we look through the incident reports, we're looking for story tips, we're looking for um, names that are familiar. And oftentimes the adults would be contacted by a member of the media and asked to relive their trauma, essentially, um, as they're still processing what's happened to them and before an investigation has taken place. So the idea behind this bill is to shield the survivor's identity um, just until the point of where if there's a charge that um, is determined. So it gives them a little bit of time to heal, um, to process, their trauma for advocates to reach out to them and, and kind of help them. Maybe they need a new place to live. Maybe they're um, trying to work through what their next steps in their life might look like. So that's an exciting bill. Um, there's two others. One is around debt collection. So when there's been a sexual assault or abuse and the person goes to get medical care, obviously we want to ensure that the care is paid for, but what we've seen sometimes is that those bills end up going to collection, and then that impacts the person's ability to, to be economic, economically stable. Um, we do have a crime commission in Nebraska that has funds that will pay for those medical services, so we want to ensure that it's being rerouted to the crime commission and that the survivor is not saddled with that debt that's related to their trauma and their abuse. So that's a second one. And then the third one is around a domestic abuse death review team. And that was also brought to us by survivors, fam uh, several families of survivors who um, passed away, were killed, and domestic abuse was part of that person's history at some point. So the idea is to form a death review team to go back and look at that case and try to find some areas where maybe the system broke down, it didn't work as it should have, one agency may not have shared some information with another agency, um, and try to find some recommendations for areas of improvement. Nebraska is one of nine states that does not have a domestic abuse death review team, so we're hopeful that we can get something like that in our state. Are you feeling confident about these? you think there's some traction in the legislature uh, right now? I hope so. I mean, it's it's dicey. It's a short session, and um, neither of those other bills received a priority designation, so it might be a little challenging. We're hoping it can find a ride. And these and are often through. sort of like multi-year processes of reintroducing bills, right, to they are. get more support over time. Yes. Well, and it's got to – I don't know if – I mean, as far as issues of sexism, of equity – 
Uh, it's certainly something people are talking about right now in the legislature with the, I guess, allegations against Senator Graney, ex-Senator Graney. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, it's hard to say, I guess, that a lot of these issues are not issues, right? Exactly. <laughs> and that's the point. We have to talk about them. We have to think about and elevate best practices. We have to be realistic about workplace harassment and how those systems need to change so that everyone can work in a place that is free from oppression and and free from harassment. And you'd hope that that's a, an easy sell, and I hope it is. <laughs> <laughs> but when you have the patriarchy that's in control of that system, it is hard to shift it. But, I mean, we said, though, you're optimistic. We're, we're slowly getting there. I am optimistic. We will get there, yes. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, one of the things that was really interesting is I had a conversation with my parents who are in their 70s. They said to me, I'm surprised that after the work we did in the 60s that your generation is still fighting some of the same issues. We thought we conquered it, right? We did it. And so that's really disheartening. So I'm hopeful that that my generation can get a little bit further so that my son and, and his generation will have less work to do. Well, so for people who want to join the fight and they want to get involved or just learn more about the Women's Fund, where should they go? They should go to omahawomensfund.org. That's our website. We have a advocate, like a get involved button. So you can just click that and it will take you to a wonderful page on advocacy, particularly in the state legislature. So you can get an idea of all of the bills that we have an opinion about that we've taken a formal position of on this session. Um, and then you could join our email us and you'll get policy updates, you'll get updates about our organization. We have a fundraiser coming up, so maybe we'll get to talk about it in October. We haven't announced the speaker yet, but last year's speaker was Tarana Burke, who's the founder of the Me Too movement. It was wonderful to have her come and talk about the intersection between gender-based violence and the need for comprehensive sex education. Because when you talk about healthy relationships, when you talk about consent early, that's a form of prevention. Joe, it was great to get to know you more and to know the issues that are on your mind and how people can get involved. So thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. This was phenomenal. I appreciate it. Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember that you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.